I've got a, a word that God puts on, God's put on my heart that I want to share with you here this morning. We're going to be basing ourselves in the book of Genesis. But before I, um, I read the text and, um, and share the story, I just want to give you a bit of a warning that uh, it's going to go a little bit longer than usual. I really tried my hardest to compact as much of the story as I could, um, but it's just such an interesting story, and there's, there's so many things to bring into context to actually understand what we're going to be sharing on. Uh, but the good news is that the story is quite dynamic, and so I think the story is going to keep you awake, and the story is itself so interesting that it'll keep you um, attentive. So what we're specifically going to be looking at here this morning is... Um, is the story of Abraham, of Sarah, uh, of Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. That's what we're going to be looking at. Now, the chances are that if you've been uh, at church for a while, uh, you're either somewhat or very uh, well-rounded in this story. You've, you've heard it, you, you, you've developed some ideas about who the characters are, who the good guys are, and who the bad guys are. And, uh, and, and so the church has historically tended to side with uh, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac as the heroes. Um, and we do this, we've seen this historically as, you know, people have interpreted the, the, the text. We, we, they do this because Isaac was the child of promise, um, because we see uh, that Isaac and, and his family were the ones that um, um, that, that Israel came from, and we also see that they're mentioned over and over and over again in the Bible. On the other hand, the church has traditionally uh, villainized Hagar and Ishmael. And the reason why, we, why, why we've done this uh, historically is the exact opposite for why we have um, made the other three heroes. Uh, we have actually villainized them because Ishmael isn't the son of promise. Uh, they completely disappear after Genesis chapter 25. And, uh, and we see in, in the New Testament, Paul writing in Galatians um, heavily criticizes Hagar and Ishmael. One example of one popular commentator, uh, historian, or not historian, sorry, historically in the church is John Calvin. He calls Hagar wild and rebellious, and even goes so far as to call her and her son reprobate. Nicholas of Lyra, another example, he claimed that Ishmael had an evil character, and he couldn't for the life of him understand why on earth God would bless someone like Ishmael. And I think it's safe to say that we tend to come to similar conclusions. We tend to side with Abraham, with Sarah, and with Isaac as the heroes, and we tend to villainize Hagar and Ishmael. And if we don't villainize them, we at the very least neglect them. We raise our eyebrows and have some suspicion towards that duo. But the reason that I actually want to share this passage today, and the reason why I, I love this passage, is because it actually does the exact opposite. The point of the story is that it actually humanizes the heroes and elevates the oppressed while emphasizing God's faithfulness to both in the midst of all the mess. So what I want to do today is give you an overview of what the book of Genesis is about and then share some very brief snippets that are relevant to the story and then hone in on Genesis chapter 21. 
So looking at the book of Genesis as a whole, it actually centers on humanity's need for God's blessing and God's faithful, dogged commitment to humanity despite every obstacle. That's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And we start with Genesis 1 where God's creativity is put on display, Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. We see that God said, let there be light, and there was. We, said that God, we see that God blessed the earth, and God blessed uh, Adam and Eve. And there was just this, this incredible world of, filled with goodness because God was present. Blessing and goodness are two words that connect the whole story. We see good, the word good, appear seven times. We see the word blessing appear three times in the two, in the two chapters. And we understand blessing to be the prosperity of creation arising from the favor and presence of God. The prosperity of creation arising from the favor and presence of God. We learn that God's greatest desire is to dwell with and among His creation, with His people, and so that His life can flow from Him to everything else, which can then result in flourishing. That's Genesis 1 and 2 in a nutshell. But then we reach chapter 3 and, and everything goes pear-shaped, right? We all know the story. Adam and Eve decide to, to take de- their destiny into their own hands and they eat of the fruit of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that triggers a set of events where things go from bad to worse. We actually see it's an it's a, it's a, uh, uncontrollable spiral. So we see that Adam and Eve sin, and then from there they start blaming each other in chapter 3 at the back end. Uh, and, then at, and then in chapter 4, we see that Cain kills Abel, and then we see not only um, murder, but then we see Lamech murdering and boasting about it. And then that leads us to the following chapters where it says that, that evil spread across the whole world, and, uh, and, and there was a, a big flood. And so there's this, this, this uncontrollable spiral, there's this spread of sin that we see in the book of Genesis. But the good news is that with every single account of the spread of sin, God counteracts that with a word of grace, with a word of grace. So we see in Genesis chapter 3 that God skins the animal and He covers Adam and Eve with it. We see that He makes the, the first proclamation of the gospel where he says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We see in chapter 4 that even though Cain killed Abel, that God preserved from Adam and Eve Seth. And then we see that he raises up Noah, who would be his righteous representative amongst the crooked generation. But then we reach chapter 11. That's Genesis 1 to 10. But then we reach chapter 11, and and chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of of Babel, where people come together, basically set themselves up against God, and and they want to be like God, and they they decide to to build this tower in defiance against God. They claim sovereignty, they claim uh, 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 that they don't need God, that they're free from Him, and again, the spread of sin seems to to take over. But the difference is that at the end of chapter 11, there's there's, there's just silence. There's no word of grace. 
And so we as the readers, we're left in suspense as we're reading chapter 11. We're like, man, it seems as though God is finally done with His creation. It seems as though like He's wiped His hands of His world because the spread of sin is just too much. And as readers, we read this and we're like, man, this is just going from bad to worse and it's not getting any better. There's no signs of it getting any better. And if I were God, I would be done with this whole thing. Wipe it all. Let's start a new universe. But then we reach chapter 12 and we're introduced to Abraham. And Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is not only believed widely believed to be the the foundation of the whole book of Genesis, but it's also the word of grace after the spread of sin in chapter 11 and after the silence in chapter 11. And this is what God says to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What the author is doing here in Genesis chapter 12 is that he is recapitulating Genesis 1 to 3. He's drawing connections between one section of Genesis and the other section of Genesis. And he does this, we know he does this, because there are three particular themes that he's referencing across both passages. There is the blessing theme, which is repeated three times in Genesis 1 to 2. And that's recapitulated, that's repeated here in Genesis 12. Numerous times he talks about Abraham being a blessing. But then we also see the cursing theme, which we see in Genesis chapter 3. And that is actually connected or linked, repeated here in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I will bless those who bless you, verse 3. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And then the third theme which we find is repeated in chapter 12 from chapter 1 to 3 is the seed theme. In chapter 3, God says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then here in chapter 12, God says that Abraham's seed, Abraham's family, would be the conduit through which God would bless the world. And so what the author is doing is that he's saying that Abraham and his family will be the means by which God will restore the world back to Eden. And we know, obviously, that Jesus came from the the Jewish line, from Abraham and his family. Mike Bird, a theologian and one of my um, professors at college, he said that God's plan was for a transformed Israel to transform the world. And I love the way that he puts it. It's quite simple, but quite effective. It helps you to remember that a trans, it was, the whole design from the beginning was for a transformed Israel to transform the world. So in Genesis 12, Abraham is promised that he would become the father of a nation. But the problem is that years pass by, decades pass by, and he's still got no children. And there's this moment in Genesis chapter 15 where he starts to complain to God. Where's the seed? 
Where's this promised child? Look at what he says in verse 2 to 5. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one you uh, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so my servant, who is Eliezer, my servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars. Indeed, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And so this becomes the new plot conflict. How on earth will God overcome Sarah's barrenness and bring the promised child into the world who would restore the world back into Eden by blessing the world? How on earth is God going to do this? Because it seems like Sarah's barrenness is really threatening God's plans. Again, the spread of sin, the spread of chaos, and the spread of destruction seems to have the last word. And this leads to Abraham and Sarah deciding to control their own destinies by preempting God's promised child through the slave Hagar. Literally, the very next chapter, we just read chapter 15, the very next chapter, chapter 16, the the author does this intentionally. Chapter 16, we see Abraham takes things into his own hands and refuses to trust God's timing. Look at 16, 1 to 4. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named, named Hagar. Sarai said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abraham agreed uh, to what Sarai said. So uh, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in in the land of Canaan for 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. So in this day, in this age, if you owned a slave and then that slave had a child, you also owned the child. Child, And, and Sarah had this genial idea, note the sarcastic tone, this genial idea of preempting God's promised child by taking Hagar the slave and forcing her husband to have sex with her, so that they could have a child, and then that child, they would take ownership of him because she couldn't have a child, and then she assumed that that would be the promised child. And this just complicates everything. Now there's tension between Sarah and Hagar, and now just like Adam and Eve were pointing at each other, Abraham and Sarah are pointing at each other, and everything is a mess, right? Everything is entangled. Sarah all of a sudden feels, feels threatened by Hagar because now she's the mother of the firstborn. And if he's the firstborn, then he gets the family inheritance. And Sarah feels threatened, um, Hagar feels threatened because now they can take her son from her and just force her to leave. They can banish her from the, from the clan. So what happens from here? Sarah basically mistreats Hagar. She maltreats her, 
and uh, Hagar the slave runs away while she's pregnant. And uh, after she runs away, a slave appears, um, an angel appears to her. And the angel makes a promise. This is what it says in uh, chapter 16, verse uh, 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will, be, they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. And so the conundrum of the story is that the destiny of the promised child is tangled up with the destiny of the preemptive child, which is then tangled up to God's faithfulness. Because God has made a promise to two children now. What's going to happen? How is God going to overcome Sarah's barrenness? And if He does bring a promised child, who's going to be the heir? Is it going to be Isaac or is it going to be Ishmael? And how will God fulfill His promise to bless Ishmael, the firstborn, without impinging or affecting the inheritance of the promised child? Everyone is entangled. And the only way we will see resolution is if God fulfills His promise to all the different parties. But then, finally, the promised son arrives. And even if for a moment, for a brief moment, there is celebration and joy and happiness. Look at verse uh, chapter 21, where we're going to be grounding ourselves for the rest of, of the passage of this morning. Uh, Genesis 21, 1-7. The Lord came to Sarah as he, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what He had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, plural? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. So what's happening here? Two very brief things. Number one, notice the, the verbiage, the, the, verb that's, the, the verb commands that are used representative of God. All the, 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 the speech verbs. It says that God promised, God said, God spoke, God commanded. And uh, what the author is doing here, he's actually connecting Genesis 21 to Genesis 1 to 2, where in the creation account, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be vegetation and, and, and sea animals and sky animals, and, and there was. And so what he's saying is that the same God who created everything from nothing is the same God who has now uh, brought this promised child through Hagar, uh, through Sarah. The other thing to notice as well is that um, Abraham and Sarah are mentioned seven times just in this little passage. Seven times. Abraham and Sarah were the parents. Isaac is the child of Abraham. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading, but over and over and over again, it's repeating the fact that Abraham and Sarah are the parents. 
And the author is, is removing any possibility that anyone else is the parent because Abraham was 100 years old here. And Sarah was barren. So it really must have been an act of God for him to bring about the impossible. And this points to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness and his willingness to fulfill his promise is what is being highlighted here. The second thing is that we see Sarah celebrating and uh, she's filled with joy that she's become a new mother. It says that she's portrayed as, she's laughing, right? She's like laughing with everyone and everyone's laughing together, which is pretty ironic because the first time that God told her that she would have a child, she laughed. And it wasn't like a faith-filled laughter. It was like a cynical laughter, like, God, yeah, right. Like, yeah, as if you could do that. And the irony of the story is that, that the name Isaac means he laughs. And so what God has done is he's transitioned Sarah from cynicism to faith-filled bliss. He's brought her along this journey of being cynical and questioning whether God could do this powerful act to actually seeing it come to fruition and praising God for it. But then the scene shifts. Again, the, the spread of sin seems to always have the last word. The scene shifts and this, this celebratory spirit comes to an abrupt end. Look at 21, 8 to 10. The child grew and was weaned, referring to Isaac, and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. What we see happening here is that Abraham hosts this massive feast, this huge party. And the reason why was because in those days, they would celebrate when a, uh, uh, an infant transitioned to childhood, which as a side note, is another testament to God's faithfulness because in those days, they didn't have the medical infrastructure that we have. And for a child to get past infancy into childhood was very rare. Like that, would, that was a miracle. That was reason for celebration. And again, a testament to God's faithfulness. And so what we discover is that in the middle of this feast, in the middle of this massive party, Sarah sees something. She witnesses something. The CSB, as you would notice, says mocking. She noticed Ishmael mocking. The NASB uses the same word, mocking. And if we look at the, the ESV translation, it uses the word laughing. Now, I find that interesting because in both of those, in all three of those translations, there's actually a negative connotation to what Ishmael is doing. He's mocking Isaac. He's laughing at Isaac. But the reality is that the Hebrew word that's used here is a lot more ambiguous. It's a lot more ambiguous. A better translation is actually playing. Ishmael was playing. And I want you to notice also that there's no object in the sentence. It doesn't say he was mocking Isaac, laughing at Isaac, playing with Isaac. It just says 
Ishmael was playing. So it's very ambiguous. And in fact, recently, scholars have debated what exactly happened, because we just don't know. We have no idea what actually happened. We can't have certainty about what occurred in this situation. It can mean that Sarah saw Ishmael showing off his athleticism, right, playing, showing off his athleticism, uh, and, 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 and compared to his underdeveloped little brother, he's really comparing himself like, I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm stronger. Or it could mean that Ishmael was really just verbally abusing, or as the, the CSB and the, and the NASB put it, he's mocking Isaac. In some passages of the Bible, this word is connected to idolatry. It's the same word that we find in the book of Exodus that uh, the Israelites were worshipping the golden calf. So it could be that Sarah has walked in on Ishmael worshipping some idol. The, the, the word is also connected as an alternative interpretation. The word is also connected to sexual immorality. And so it could be some, some commentators have come to the conclusion that, that, um, that Sarah walks in and she witnesses Ishmael sexually abusing Isaac. These are, these are all valid interpretations, but I personally subscribe to none of them. What I think happened, and again, it's ambiguous, so we can't be sure, but my perspective, my interpretation, is that the boys were playing together harmlessly. They were enjoying each other's company. They were having fun as brothers. And when Sarah saw that they were playing on equal terms, when they were playing together as equals, she was reminded of the fact that Ishmael is the oldest. And she was reminded of the fact that, that this is a threat. Look at what she says to Abraham in, in verse 10. Notice that she doesn't point to the fact of what she saw. She actually just talks about how they're equals. Drive out, verse 10, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. If Ishmael had been abusing Isaac in some way, you would expect her to have said that to Abraham. But she doesn't. The reasoning she gives is, drive him out because he's not going to be a co-heir with my son. In these days... It was actually quite common for even the children of concubines to take their portion of the inheritance. And so my suspicion is that Sarah's jealous, and she wants to get rid of Ishmael and Hagar once and for all. Now, you might differ with that interpretation. That's perfectly fine. I say again that it's quite an ambiguous text. But what we have to agree on is that it's ambiguous and it's not certain. Because I used to read this growing up in church with certainty that Ishmael mocked Isaac. Ishmael verbally abused or abused in some way Isaac, when actually it's a lot more ambiguous and that may not necessarily be the case. We have to hold this with open hands. But it seems to me like the evidence suggests far more towards them just playing together harmlessly, as equals, and Sarah becoming jealous than it does anything else. 
So Sarah employs a radical response. She demands that Abraham banish them, kick them out of the clan. And this is a serious deal in this day and age, which is quite patriarchal. And if you don't have a husband or a father, you're bound to die. No one's going to protect you. No one's going to provide for you. And I have to be clear that this is oppressive. This is oppressive. This is an upper-class woman mistreating a slave who's going to become a single mother now, demanding that they're banished from the group without a husband or any means of making a living. Friends, Sarah is not the hero of the story. If anything, Sarah is the perpetrator. Hagar is the victim here. Ishmael is the victim here. Now, imagine the tension that Abraham is going through, right? Like, imagine the internal tension that he'd be going through in that moment. Imagine your wife adamantly insisting that you kick out your firstborn son when your wife was the one who insisted you have him in the first place with her, her slave. Like, it's just, it's just, it's what do you do? Do you, do you give, do you kind of ignore your wife and, and, and have them stay and risk like relational tension between you and your wife and have her, ha- her yap in your ear for the rest of your life? Do you, do you, I don't know, come up with some kind of other strategy where you have them live a kilometer away from each other and just hope that there's no tension? Do you cave in to Sarah's demands and actually kick them out? In which case, you'd never see your son ever again. Like, what do you do? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What do you do? And what I love about this story is that Abraham does none of those options. Abraham actually runs to God and seeks counsel from God. He asks God, what do you think about this situation? Genesis 21, 11 to 13. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. The last time Abraham listened to Sarah, they got into this whole mess. Abraham has learnt to prioritize the opinion of God above the opinion of others, and he's learned not to preempt his decisions, but to come to God and say, God, what do you want? What do do you want me to do in this situation? I have no idea what to do. And what's crazy is that you'd expect the God of righteousness, the God of love, the God who cares for the weak and the oppressed, to side with Hagar. Hagar. You'd expect him to say, I'm denouncing Sarah for the oppression she's caused, and I'm defending Hagar. But instead, what does he do? He sides with Sarah's solution. This has caused a lot of atheists, a lot of Christians, a lot of commentators to protest God and say, God, what on earth are you doing? Aren't you the God of justice? 
Aren't you the God of righteousness who cares for the weak and the oppressed? Why are you kicking out Hagar and Ishmael? Don't you know that they won't be able to survive? I think it's important to bear in mind here what God is actually doing. God is accommodating to Sarah's solution without approving of Sarah's motives and taking the responsibility of caring for Hagar and Ishmael upon his own shoulders. He's accommodating to Sarah's solution. He is not approving of Sarah's motives, and he is taking the responsibility of caring for the duo upon his own shoulders. Think about it. God's plan to bless the world through the promised child, Isaac, remains firm. That's the promise. God's got to keep it. He's unwavering on that. Ishmael is the, um, Isaac is the successor. But God loves Ishmael too. And he wants to bless Ishmael. He wants to care for Ishmael. And weirdly, the way that God blesses Ishmael is by removing him from the clan. God knows that if Ishmael stays, he's going to live under the shadow of his little brother for the rest of his life. He's going to be in the middle of a family feud for the rest of his life. And he's going to be in in an oppressive context for the rest of his life. And so God's solution is remove him from the clan, remove him from the oppressive context, remove him from the entanglement, because that's how I want to bless Ishmael. And then he takes the burden and the responsibility of caring for Ishmael upon his own shoulders. I will be the provider that Abraham can't be. I will be the protector that Abraham can't be. I will be the present father that Abraham cannot be. And so we see that the story begins to unfold. God starts to disentangle the promised child from the preemptive child, proving his faithfulness to both. But before the blessing, we know that there's always the word of sin that seems to have the last word. And there's this harrowing scene, harrowing, this heartbreaking scene, because Abraham now says goodbye to the firstborn son that he loves so much. And I confess that when I read this, I wept like a baby, like I sobbed, just imagining that moment where Abraham is saying goodbye to Ishmael. Genesis 21, 14 to 16, early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance. About a bow shot away, keep that chapter marked in your mind, about a bow shot away, for she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. So we see here Abraham finally having to face the consequences of the mistake of a decision he made decades earlier to have a child with Hagar, to give in to Sarah's demands. I think for him in the moment, that moment, it seemed like a wise decision. Oh, God's made a promise. We're going to have a child. He's going to be the seed through which he restores the world. But it doesn't seem so wise now. He's having to say goodbye to his firstborn son. But he's learnt obedience. 
He's learnt obedience and he entrusts the future of his, of his son and his son's mother into the hands of a faithful God. He's holding on to the hope that the same God who promised Sarah would have a child even though she was barren and fulfilled that promise is now the same God who will care for Ishmael, who will protect Ishmael and will turn Ishmael into a great nation like he promised. But of course, it it doesn't make it any easier. Life with God often is not easy, even though it's simple. It's very hard. And so what we see the text saying is that he woke up early in the morning. He rose up early in the morning. There are only two other occasions in Genesis where, where it says that Abraham woke up early in the morning. The first is in chapter 19 when he rose up early and saw Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. And the second is in chapter 22, right before he's about to take Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice the promised child. And so this points to the the solemn mood, the somber mood of the situation. And as though it's not solemn enough, it's like it's just being ripped off like a band-aid as fast as possible. It's like he woke up early in the morning, he gave him bread and water, and off they went. Like just the pain of that situation as a father I mean, I'm a recent father. My nine-month, I couldn't bear the thought of departing from her, of parting ways with her forever, for, never to see her again. You can imagine the difficulty, the distress, and the pain of that moment. And then, of course, as if it couldn't get even more tragic than it already is, we see the harrowing, gut-wrenching moment where this slave who has been oppressed her whole life who's been rejected and outcast, is now destitute in a wilderness. She's exhausted her supplies. She's exhausted her hope. She's physically exhausted. She's got no energy left. And so she puts her son under the tree in the shade and goes a bow shot away from him and just wails and weeps. From a human perspective, friends, there seems like there is no escape. There is no way out of this. And again, it seems like the word of sin, the spread of sin, has had the last laugh, has had the final word. But the good news is that the God of Sarah and Isaac is also the God of Ishmael and Hagar. And this is the God who laughs last. The God who in every instance has overpowered the spread of sin with grace. It says in Genesis 21, 17 to 21, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up. Help the boy up and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and saw, uh, and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So it says there that, that God heard the boy crying out. Now, it's ironic because Ishmael means 
God hears. God hears. And so he has heard their crying. He has heard their complaints. He has heard their groaning. And he has swooped down to save them. Now, I find it incredibly ironic that in the book of Exodus, God is saving Israel from an oppressive Egypt. And here, it's the opposite. God is saving Hagar, who is from Egypt, from an oppressive Sarah, who is the mother of the Israelites. You see the irony, and yet you see God's faithfulness and impartiality, how He loves people, no matter where they're from. It's also interesting that the same angel that appears to Isaac in chapter 22, the whole sacrifice your son scene, chapter 22, the same angel appears to Ishmael in chapter 21. And the same angel who blesses Isaac in chapter 22 also blesses Ishmael in chapter 21. The point is this, that if God has made a promise to both, then He will fulfill the promise to both. If He's going to save Isaac, He's going to save Ishmael. And if He's going to prevent Ishmael from dying, He will by no means allow Isaac to die either. God is faithful to His promises. And this is my favorite part. It's so redemptive. Like, there's so much hope and, and so much, it's so faith-filling. Um, the word Ishmael appears three more times in Genesis, in three chapters. In chapter 25, in chapter 37, and in chapter 39. And I want to read to you a couple of verses from two of those chapters. This is in chapter 25, um, as Abraham dies. Look at what it says in verse 7. This is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his last breath and died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Mechpala near Mamre. So redemptive. It's just beautiful. It's, 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 it's poetry in motion. You see how, how God brought restoration to Ishmael, even though he was the rejected son, and here he is burying his father as an equal to Isaac. The second reference is actually the one at the beginning of Joseph's story, later on in, um, in, in Genesis, when his brothers betray him. Uh, they throw him in the pit, and they decide whether or not they're going to kill him, and they decide to end up selling him. This is 37, 26 to 28. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. You see the redemptive purpose of God through all of this, that it was the descendants of Ishmael who took the descendant of Isaac to Egypt, and Joseph then developed and grew in Egypt, became someone who was of incredible power, and God used Joseph to bring restoration to the world when there was famine, and uh, he saved all that food for everyone. In other words, God was fulfilling His promise of blessing the world through the seed of Abraham, even doing so through the descendants of the firstborn son who had been exiled. Now back to chapter 21, as we close the story of, um, as we close this story. 
after Ishmael and Hagar are saved, it says that Ishmael grew, he took a wife, and he became an archer. He grew, he took a wife, and became an archer. And I heard this my whole life growing up, that God has a sense of humor, and it's confirmed. God has a sense of humor. Because in verse 16, it says that when, when, when Hagar was in the pits of despair, she lost all hope that she and her son would survive. She put Ishmael under the tree in the shade and, and sat a bow shot away from him. And what are the chances that very same son grows to become an archer? Friends, God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. He has proven himself to be repeatedly faithful every single time sin seems to have the last laugh. Every obstacle, every hurdle, every obstruction. He proves himself faithful even to a rejected slave and her son. The story of Abraham, friends, and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar is a story of tragedy because of the oppression caused by a social elite upon an underprivileged society, an underprivileged party. The social elite tends to be our hero, Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, uh, Sarah, they tend to be our heroes in the Christian tradition. When in reality, they're just full of failures and faithlessness and they're full of flaws. But even though the story is full of tragedy, it's also full of hope and redemption and triumph because in it, we see God's love for the outcast and the rejected. And through it, we see His dogged commitment to restore his world and to his people. You see how the story humanizes our heroes and elevates the oppressed and the rejected, all the while proving God's faithfulness to both parties in the midst of all the chaos and all the mess. As we close, just a couple of points of application. Number one, learn to obey God even when you don't understand. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on Job and I made the point, learn to trust God even when you don't understand. This is a bit more of an active one. Learn to obey God even when you don't understand. Abraham had no idea why God hadn't given him a child yet. And that would have been distressing. Like, that would have been really hard. God, you've promised, and I'm waiting, and the child's not coming. So when he precipitated the promised child by having Ishmael with Hagar, he learnt that the temporary benefits of disobeying God, however wise and convenient they may be in the moment, are just not worth it. It's not worth the heartache that it causes in the long run. It's not worth it. And then likewise, Abraham later on in his life had no idea why God was releasing Hagar and Ishmael, his only son, his, his, um, his oldest son. It was deeply painful. But when Abraham obeyed God's command to release them, he learned that making sacrifices, however inconvenient or difficult they might be, are actually worth it if it means seeing God's purposes fulfilled. Now, I think it's important to be clear here that the point of the story is not for you to abandon your children or to do anything 
outrageous because you heard God tell you to do it. Like, that's just not the point. It's going to look very different for you than it did for Abraham, but the same principle applies. We live in a time, friends, that making our own decisions, independently of what everyone else thinks that benefits us, is highly prized. And we live in a time and an era where convenience is also highly prized. So when you mix our aversion for inconvenience and narcissism, let's just call it for what it is, we are individualistic narcissists, you get a concoction that sets you up for disobedience and death. That's, that's essentially it. The point of the story is for us to obey God even though we don't understand what He's up to. Now, perhaps you're here and and God has put it on your heart to raise your children in a particular way, to shift some certain things, and you're just so tired that you just haven't had the time to implement it. Or maybe he's, He's really spoken to you about not being in this particular career or living this particular lifestyle, and for the life of you, you just can't understand why, and you keep deferring. Or maybe He's spoken to you, He's convicted you to be more generous with your finances towards people, and it doesn't align with your financial plan or your future goals, and so you just resist. Learn to obey God even when you don't understand. Even when the sacrifices are great. Even when it's highly inconvenient. Because it's only when we learn to obey God, despite the inconvenience and the difficulty, that we can expect Him to bring to fruition the plans and the purposes that He has and the promises that He has for our lives. So that's the first one. Learn to obey God even when you don't understand. Number two, Learn to ground yourself in the faithfulness of God. Learn to ground yourself in the faithfulness of God. God's plan to restore the world through the seed of Abraham remained firm. Despite every obstacle and despite everything seeming to suggest the contrary, Sarah's barrenness was overcome by God's power. The entanglement was overcome by God's wisdom. The, dis, the preemptive child was disentangled from the promissory child. And even though on the surface it seems like God didn't care about Ishmael, we see that in fact He did. He cared for him by taking him out of an oppressive context, by saving him in the wilderness, and then by fulfilling His promise of him becoming a great nation. And we see from all of this that God is hell-bent on removing every obstacle, every barrier of His project for global, universal blessing. God is faithful. And when Abraham felt the distress of losing his oldest son, instead of running away from God, he actually ran to God. He found shelter in God. He made God his fortress. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Because I feel one thing, but what you want is far better. You know, the best example that I can come up with of someone who has learnt time and time again to hide themselves in the faithfulness of God is actually my wife, Priscilla. 
And I'm going to brag on my wife for a little second here. Um, we met, we, we were both born in Brazil in the same city. We have numerous uh, mutual friends, and we never met in Brazil. We actually met here in Australia in 2011. And, uh, and, and we became Facebook friends. We didn't really sustain the conversation. We never talked. We never messaged each other. Like, we were just friends on Facebook, and that was it. 2012 comes around. She goes back to Brazil, and she lives her normal life, and then she starts having dreams of me. And these were just like random dreams, right? Me walking in a room and then walking out, or we'd be walking in the park together. We'd be walking at the beach. And she started having these dreams day after day after day, month after month after month. And it comes to a point where you start asking yourself, like, God, are you behind this or is it just me? Like, am I thinking things here? Am I, am I imagining things here? Like, do you, is Philippe the guy for me? Because we don't even talk to each other. And in those moments, it's very easy for you to kind of like force the prophecy, right? Like she can come to me and say, hey, Philippe, God told me. Okay, I better, I better propose then. Here's the ring. Like you can kind of force your agenda, and yet she never raised it with me. She didn't tell me. And there were multiple confirmations. Like this is like a little snippet. There were like prophecies. There were prophetic signs. There were confirmations that would like, that would blow your mind. Crazy stuff and she never told me. She waited until I told her, after we were dating, that I wanted to marry her. That's when she told me about the whole story, right? But throughout the story, from the time that we met until the time we got married was seven years. Seven years. And she knew, but she waited seven years. And that was a difficult wait. Like, it was hard. There were moments there where she's like, man, am I going crazy? Like, I'm just going to give this whole thing up. But what grounded her was the faithfulness of God. What grounded her was the fact that she knew God would be faithful to her and to me and to His promises. Maybe you're waiting for God on something. And maybe you've been waiting for a long time. Maybe like Abraham You've been waiting for decades. Maybe he confirmed to you a particular promise and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. It could be that you're seriously struggling financially. And God is, keeps to, just keeps delaying. He seems to not be real, really interested in your situation and, and you're really feeling the pinch and you're starting to go crazy. God, where are you? Or maybe you have kids that have grown wayward despite the fact that you raised them in the ways of the Lord and, and you've been praying for them and interceding and you've been waiting. God, when do they come to know you? And you've been getting disoriented by, by how they're living their life. Learn to ground yourself in the faithfulness of God. Particularly during seasons of difficulty and wait. Because when we ground ourselves in the faithfulness of God, it actually helps us to regain perspective. To regain perspective over the fact that God isn't done with His world. God isn't done with those around you. And He's certainly not done with you. Learn to ground yourself in the faithfulness of God. Number three, be careful who you label a hero and a villain. 
be careful who you label a villain and a hero. In other words, be wise about taking sides too quickly. As humans, we tend to either dismiss or demonize those who are not like us. Those who don't think like us, maybe it's politically, theologically, those who don't talk like us, dress like us, walk like us, those who don't have history with us, we tend to dismiss them, to have an eye of suspicion towards them, and sometimes even demonize them. And so when we read the story in Genesis, it's easy to villainize Hagar, as I did for so long, and as so many church historians have done for so long. And we can construe the story in such a way that Sarah is the, 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 the hero of the faith. When actually Sarah is the hero who needs to be humanized because she's the one causing this oppression against Hagar. And actually Hagar is the one who needs to be elevated because she's the one that's enduring all the oppression and all the great difficulty coming her way. You know, it's funny, being 2,000 years removed from Jesus, we often read the New Testament and we think to us, well, I think to myself, like, how on earth could all these people want Jesus to be crucified? Like, He's done all these miracles. He's done all these incredible things. Like, how is that even possible? He is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And yet, I'm sure that if we lived in first century Palestine and heard Jesus say things like, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh, and seen Him uh, 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 criticize the Pharisees and, 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 and seen Him do all these radical things... I'm sure that we wouldn't have been shocked or surprised by the fact that he was crucified. He was the one who was criticizing the religious leaders and the religious establishment, and yet he was misunderstood. And the religious leaders were the ones who, who were seen to be the heroes when actually they were the, they were the wolves. We live in a time in history where we can say what we want and when we want through social media, and feel like we're expert enough, in our opinion, and credible enough, more so than everyone else on our feet. We live in a time where we are bombarded with headlines and information from the media. And we live in an age of misplaced loyalty, which has actually led to radical division and polarization. Like, that's just the reality. And so, that gives us this strange audacity where all of a sudden we feel qualified enough to criticize everyone, their dog and their mother and their auntie. Jesus said something very specific about this when he was ministering on earth. He said, judge not lest you be judged. The same measure that you apply unto others will be applied unto you. If you are found criticizing someone who does the exact same thing that you do, just in a different way, then you'll be found to be a hypocrite. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be critical thinkers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't discern. But what I am saying is that rather than having our instinct, instinctive reaction as of criticism or hypercriticism, it should be love. We should learn to put ourselves in the shoes of those we're about to criticize. We should learn to pray for them before we actually comment. We should learn to ask questions we should learn to listen intently. Don't be hypercritical. Don't be a fault finder. 
Don't be nitpicky. Don't assume the worst of people's motives. Don't jump to conclusions without having done proper research. And acknowledge the limitations of your research. Don't condemn them with your tone. Be careful who you are unhesitatingly aligning with. Sometimes we write the wrongs off of those who we align with, who we we agree with. We shouldn't do that. We are people of the truth. Paul says to Timothy that the church is the pillar of truth. Don't write off their wrongs just because they generally do the right thing or because they're talented or because they agree with you on a particular point. Be careful who you label a hero and a villain. And lastly, number four, take up the call to defend the outcast, the rejected, and the oppressed. God called Abraham and his family to become a transformed Israel who would transform the world. But what he saw and what he did means that he failed miserably. Even though he's a hero of the faith, he failed miserably. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is the new Israel, who is the new Abraham, to care for the widows, to look after the oppressed, to come to the sinners, to rescue people like you and me who are broken and destroyed. Take up the call. Because now, those of us who are in Christ, we take up that mission to represent God in the new world, in the new age, where we are called to help the oppressed, to lift up the downtrodden, and to care for the weak. If we see the heart of God, we see that He cares for those like Hagar and like Ishmael. And so as we close, I'd like to invite the band to come up. I want to remind us of those four application principles. Learn to trust, to obey God, even when you don't understand. Be careful who you label a hero and a villain. Learn to ground yourself in the faithfulness of God and take up the call to defend the outcast and the weak and the oppressed. Why don't we stand and let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Lord, as we read it, we can't help but think what a mess this family feud was. And yet, Lord, how messy our families can be sometimes too. And Lord, despite all of it, we are reminded of your faithfulness. Help us, Father, to ground ourselves in your faithfulness when all else seems lost. Help us to to ground ourselves on the fact that you will stop at nothing to restore your people, to restore your world, that you're not done with us and those around us and this, this world, that you're not wiping your hands of your creation, but Lord, you're here with us, in it, in and amongst us, through it, in the chaos, in the thorns and thistles, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to apply these principles in our lives, to become more like Christ, to look after the downtrodden, the oppressed, the rejected, the outcasts, the underprivileged. Help us, Lord, to to obey you. There is no command you've given us that, Lord, we cannot obey. 
because Jesus lived the life as an example, dependent wholly on the spirit of obedience. Help us, Lord, to obey, no matter the inconvenience, no matter the sacrifice. So we thank you, Lord. We're just so thankful for your faithfulness. We thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness through this story here this morning. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.